Hello, and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackers. And I'm Kevin Hector. And we're really pleased to have with us today our guest, Laura Lieber, who is Professor of Religious Studies at Duke University. She's a specialist in ancient Judaism. She also has appointments at Duke in the Classics Department, in Germanic Studies, and then the Divinity School. So it's really a pleasure to say welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. Uh, we want to talk to you today about your new research uh, on synagogues and theater in late antiquity. But before we jump into that topic, maybe we should start just by asking you to talk a little bit about uh, your research profile and the work that, that you do more generally. This obviously isn't your first project. And so uh, tell us a little bit more about your work and maybe what then led you uh, to this new project. I think of my work as being sort of largely on the reception of the Hebrew Bible in the Jewish communities of antiquity. And by that, I mean, I, I think of that as a way, that's a way of framing the question that links together the different genres of text and the different contexts that I've worked in, which, by which I mean, I've started primarily in rabbinic midrash, so rabbinic interpretations of the biblical text. And because I was interested in knowing how these traditions were received more popularly, I moved from midrash into the field of targum, the Aramaic translations of scripture from antiquity. But then as I found that the conversations in targum studies revolved around questions of, were they really literary texts? How much did these Aramaic translations that we have in written form resemble what was presented in the synagogue. I actually moved to synagogue poetry because while there's still plenty of questions about how they were experienced, we do know that at least that these texts were meant to be consumed uh, in the synagogue setting. Um, they're, they're, they weave the liturgies into the uh, interpretations, into the exegesis. And so there, at least there, I had some sense of the actual performed context of the works, although they're, in a way, they're three different facets of, I think, sort of the same body of traditions. And through that lens, I became very interested in, in the early synagogue itself as an institution, uh, who was performing these works, who was hearing these works, how they resonate with what was going on in a larger culture at the time, especially because the third, fourth century of the common era, we see a huge sudden sort of flowering of religious poetry throughout the Eastern Mediterranean world uh, in both, in, not just in Hebrew and Aramaic, but in Greek and Syriac and, and Latin as well. And so really sort of being very interested in this poetry is sort of the public face of rabbinic literature is one way of thinking of it. So can you give us an example of what maybe one of these poems would be like? Uh, what the content is, how they're doing this kind of interpretation of biblical texts that you mentioned? Yeah, they can, there's a huge variety. And I should mention that most of the texts I work with come from the Cairo Geniza. Uh, so there are texts that were lost uh, for a long time, although some of them were preserved and some remain part of living liturgical rituals. But they can be really varied in form. There are some are very simple, straightforward uh, sort of 22 line acrostic poems structured on the Hebrew alphabet or the Aramaic alphabet as the case may be. And a lot, those can sometimes be just sort of inserted into a 
into a biblical story. They offer, can offer sort of an interpretation of a moment. So for example, there's one remarkable uh, poem that is preserved in Targum manuscripts as uh, an, an example of honoring uh, thy father and mother for the Torah portion, for the reading of the 10 commandments on Shavuot. And it's uh, the binding of Isaac. So honoring your father and mother is uh, associated with the binding of Isaac. And the entire poem is in Isaac's voice. Hmm. Uh, so it's Isaac on top of the altar. And you can see through how sort of he's talking to Abraham, uh, you know, you get sort of a sense of what Abraham is doing, but it takes this one moment where the biblical text is famously gapped and it inserts this uh, one sort of 22 line poem into that space. Whereas other compositions are extremely complicated and run on to uh, hundreds of lines and interweave the theme of the Torah portion for the week is a one very common example. So the Torah portion for the week, its first couple of verses, and then the prophetic reading for the week into the statutory prayers of the morning service for the Sabbath or Shabbat. And uh, those will have multiple sort of acrostic units. Hmm. And they often move from sort of, and they, they're sort of, symphon I think of them as symphonic because they are such extended compositions and they have sort of different movements. And so the opening will be more cryptic and sort of riddle-like. And I think of this sort of, it sort of engages uh, sort of the intelligentsia and sort of pulls you in, you sort of wonder where they're going. And then as the poem moves on, there's sort of a more narrative section, which will again have these 22 lines for the acrostic, but it sort of specifies uh, the, the, the interpretation that's being offered. And then at the end of the poem will often become very participatory and very focused on the liturgical moment. So hmm. there's sort of this arc, so it moves from the intellectual to the uh, sort of ex almost ecstatic. I mean, it has sort of a lot of resonances with what we see from mysticism at the same period in time. So this rabbinic, but it, it culminates in the, the Kedusha, which is you know, the, the holy, holy, holy uh, moment of the prayer service. And the, so the whole congregation sort of being brought together and so it's interesting to see sort of both have the interplay of sort of mind and body that goes on in the poems, but especially sort of how what starts out as being fairly frontal, sort of the, the cantor, you know, sort of singing at the congregation, but there's sort of a pattern to how the congregation is brought into the performance. So that's fascinating. It also seems like it leads pretty naturally to the work you're undertaking right now. So can you tell us a little bit more about as you bring in this other public dimension by way of theater, can you tell us more about what that looks like? Yeah, I would be happy to because in a way, a lot of my work of necessity involved translations of these works, which I never set out to be a translator of ancient Hebrew and Aramaic poetry, but to make the works accessible to a wider scholarly audience, I had to do that. And one of the things I remember initially struggling with was the dis discerning who was speaking certain lines. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I remember thinking, you know, initially my first thought of course was that this was my problem. <laughs> 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 that, uh, that if I, if somehow, if I, if I were smarter or, um, you know, someone who was meant to be a, a translator in a way that I feel that I was really meant to be a translator, that I would somehow have magical insights into this. And then I realized eventually that actually this is 
part of the interpretation. And I even sort of was thinking about the fact that I used to like to teach, you know, like with the, the Song of Songs, the, the, the edition, the translations that label the mm -hmm. speakers mm -hmm. in, in, in Shir Hashirim, you know, and yeah. especially like when they label them, you know, bride and bridegroom, right. uh, always excellent. Uh, but really, <laughs> you know, you know, so, but really realizing that there were certain places where it was actually unclear who was speaking and that sort of thinking about who, you know, if, if I'm hearing this, this, this passage in the voice of Moses, it, it reads one way, or if it's in the voice of God, it's a very different significance to the language and realizing, and that actually is what brought me into the realm of sort of performance, because I realized that everything I try to do with, in, in, a, in a printed text with, you know, quotation marks, punctuation, is that a question or a statement, all this that sort of inflection that I'm doing through printed mechanisms that a, when these texts were actually heard in antiquity, all of that work would be done by the voice and the body. And so I started looking really at the training of orators and actors. And I became aware in a way that I sort of feel like I can't believe I wasn't aware of it before, but sort of the, the centrality of oral delivery in the late antique world and the significance going back, um, you know, to like, you know, it goes back to you know, Aristotle, uh, but certainly what we have with um, Cicero and Quintilian and Libanius. And, you know, we have sort of so much material from late antiquity on the expressiveness of the voice, the expressiveness of the face. And, and seeing how, if I took that into consideration, how sort of more three-dimensional these texts became and thinking about the fact that I was always sort of supplying a certain amount and not even really consciously, but trying to then become very conscious of that. Yeah. So let me ask you about that because like you say, in some of these classical sources, you have you know explicit discussion of precisely these issues. How are you mining the Jewish materials from late antiquity for this kind of information. You talked about the ambiguity around speakers. Um, is there other information that gives you clues to you know, these kinds of theatrical elements? Yeah, I mean, I, to some extent, I, I sometimes feel like I'm coloring in from the margins, mm -hmm. you know, that I'm sort of trying to build, build in the picture from what is most concretely known. And it gets sort of ever more sort of speculative in some ways as I get closer, but I've done certain things like, you know, there's the idea that the, the, the word this, you know, the deictic particle means pointing mm -hmm. is very uh, common in rabbinic literature. And we see that that sort of is maintained. Uh, we also have a lot of, uh, there's a really wonderful trove of sort of illuminated manuscripts of Terence from the middle ages. So the, the Roman comedian Terence, and it's a handbook of, um, body language of gestures in particular that would be used uh, in the, for the performance of these plays. And they all have big hands, which is part of what I really, <laughs> I really like the fact that you know, the, the, the illustrator sort of like made these large, and you see sort of like certain kinds of gestures and pointing. And then I'm thinking, and then you see, like I've been, because Purim is starting soon, I've been looking at illuminated medieval manuscripts of Esther. And mm -hmm. when Esther says, this wicked Haman, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, and the, and the medieval, there's a one 
medieval illumination were actually Esther and Mordecai and Ahasuerus are all pointing at Haman. <laughs> so, so it's the idea that sort of this and then noticing, sort of paying attention to that kind of deixis in the poetry is one way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also there are intriguing places where there's it, where the the voice will sort of violate you know it'll break the fourth wall in some ways. So there's mm-hmm. one poem in the Ar- Jewish Aramaic uh, corpus. It's a poeticized summary of the of really the entire Hebrew Bible. It's, it's a it's really it's on chronicles, which whoever thought chronicles would inspire poetry. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> and, and so the poet is sort of going through the entire sacred history of Israel. And at one point, you can sort of like you get the sense that like he looks at his watch. He's like, oh, well, you know, I've only got, you know, 22, 22 lines left. So I better hurry it up. And he sort of fast forwards through a bunch. Uh, but it's, sort of, it's in there in the text. And that gives you a sense of sort of repartee between the poet uh, and, and his audience. And even the manuscript traditions where... Uh, the participatory elements are cued in, you know, refrains um, are indicated through cues in the manuscripts, or even the fact that in later antiquity that people would go through and supply earlier poems with refrains because people wanted to, uh, to be sort of more engaged in the performance. And looking at that kind of evidence of the role of the congregation and the dynamics between the congregation and the cantor and reading that in the context of late antique acclamation, the fact that the theater audience is also expected to interact with the performers on the stage and to interact with uh, orators who were speaking at them. It just, it became, it integrated the synagogue into the larger modes of discourse, I guess, in, in late antiquity. People just expected to make their voices heard and expected to be engaged and that we see in the in the Pew team in the poems uh, a, a sort of synagogue Judaism manifestation of that larger cultural way of being in the world. So I'm interested to hear more about the category of theater and how robustly you want to apply theatrical categories to this, because um, on the one hand, any sort of performance, it's going to involve some degree of theatricality, but there's also a more specific notion of theatricality, which involves the putting on of a play or something like that. And within at least the ancient Christian world, there are lots of worries about that. So I'd be interested to know, are there contemporaneous worries about the theater um, in ancient Judaism? And if so, um, how does that relate to this kind of thesis? And I'd also just be interested to know how much, how extensive do you want to apply this category of theatricality? Does it just help us get at the performative aspect or are there, is there a, is, are there more aspects of the notion of theater that get brought into the performance of liturgy? I mean, to some extent, I think of the performance and the theatricality, I look both at theater and at oratory, mm-hmm. uh, which was obviously a more respectable profession. And there's a lot of anxiety among orators about how much they resemble actors. Right. <laughs> and, and, and at the same time, we also know that they studied actors. And there, you know, so, so there's sort of, there's a lot of ambivalence about the theater, I think. And we certainly have rabbinic sources uh, that express uh, disapproval of, of the theater and, and its mm-hmm. irreverence and especially the mime performances, which were often very bawdy. But we also have evidence of Jewish 
actors and Jewish entertainers. <laughs> and these were quite, you know, they were celebrities. You know, so we have a lot of, uh, so I'd say that ultimately it's really this ambivalence about it. Mm. I think that there's an element of, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. I think there's sort of an, <laughs> yeah. that if you, you that there's, a, that, that there's an, un, in the same way that orators understood that actors could be very effective communicators and you wanted to steal from them sort of the techniques that were effective at getting eyes to, to, to look at you and bodies to be in your vicinity, that that's what we see in, uh, we see it with like, you know, Chrysostom, for example, in the Christian mm -hmm. tradition, we have, you know, it's clear that from the, we have much more writing about the theater from the Christian world, which has been, again, that's sort of what I think of with the coloring in from the margins is I think sort of like mm. um, drawing together, you know, that we have, uh, I think, you know, Augustine, I think is the one who talks about the fact that he refers to, to motifs from the classical canon and says, you know, you haven't read, you haven't read Homer, but you know, these, these motifs from the theater. Mm -hmm. And part of what's interesting is we have like the, the, the rhetorical handbooks from antiquity. So we have the Prognosmata, which it's, it's fascinating to see sort of that these examples which have encouraged a student of oratory to speak in the voice of Niobe, uh, Niobe mourning her children. And then you read a poem about Eve mourning Abel or Zion mourning her children. And you sort of see how these sorts of these ways of speaking in character are in a way that I think they're sort of conventional. And I, to some extent, I, I see it as being about effective modes of communication and speaking to people the way they expect to be spoken to in, 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 when you're competing for their attention. Mm -hmm. And, and I, doesn't rely, I don't rely on the idea that the authors or the performers of these, these poems had necessarily sort of robust classical education and we know that even in antiquity, that a number of people, they're sort of like what Kribori refers to as the fast track, you know, where you get enough, you know, to sort of like know, um, know what you need to know versus the more uh, in-depth track of education. I think of it more as akin to the fact that at some point uh, you learn that in our context, when you're speaking to people, you should try to make eye contact with people at the back of the room, you mm -hmm. know, so we, and ideas about sort of what is effective body language and what is distracting body language. So um, you might learn like you move your hands around too much. Uh, why don't you put them on the podium? Uh, in other contexts, it'll be like your hands are too still. People don't know, they won't feel energized uh, if you're not waving your arms around a little more. So I think there's an element of this is just sort of effective communication. And, and like I said, I think we see that with Chrysostom who was really very well educated in these things and knew was paying attention to what his congregants, as it were, were doing, even if he disapproved. Yeah, even if I don't like TED Talks, yeah. my students might have TED Talk-shaped ideas about what a good lecture is. So having that in mind can help. Yeah, and exactly. And people listening here should know that Laura is using very appropriate hand gestures. <laughs> so really enhancing the conversation. <laughs> Just the right amount. That's right. Laura, let me ask, uh, a lot of what you're describing suggests that you can reconstruct a fair bit of the social world of late antique Jewish life, uh, including a lot of the everyday features of that life. At least you've got evidence that bears on what 
you know that life might have looked like i mean the practice of the synagogue is is really you know a regular part of of life and to have then all of these influences from the theatrical world uh to be thinking about things like education uh it sounds like you're really able to start building out the social life of jews in late antiquity uh am i hearing that correctly i'm trying i mean it's sort of it's all in dotted lines it's not i mean very but at the same time it's how do you i'm not going to overlook you know, the fact that jody magnus at, at Foucault, you know that one of the motifs in the synagogue that they found are theatrical masks mm-hmm. you know in the synagogue mosaics so that's sort of it's like wow that's <laughs> that's uh evidence of sort of the theater being part of the communal um aesthetic in the same way that you have i mean i'm very interested actually now in the way material culture sort of is helping further flesh out this picture. And one of, you know, and to the extent to where one of the things that we can see is in synagogues, they've, they've been, it's been some work is being done that indicates renovations of synagogues in the, in the, the fifth, sixth century often improved acoustics and sight lines. Hmm. And now the people who study Targum will say, well, this is so people could hear the Maturgamon. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, but but I, I, you know, I actually think it's sort of a multifunctional space. I mean, I think sure. people probably did in general want to see and hear what was going on, but they, they would add things like acoustic shells to improve people's ability to, to hear. They would elevate the space so that people could see better. And, and it indicates sort of even like a, a the built environment was reflecting a desire to improve the experience of what you were seeing. Mm-hmm. And so I do think it gets, it, it gets at a part of Jewish life. I think the big questions, we still don't know precisely like who exactly was in the different synagogues. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a question about whether a lot of the poetry that I look at is deeply influenced by rabbinic traditions. So were these in some way sort of rabbinically partisan uh, poems? Uh, were there other, you know, were the Aramaic poems in the vernacular, were they serving a, a different community or just a different purpose? Uh, were they sort of taking place in the courtyard as opposed to in the sanctuary? So mm-hmm. there, there's still a lot of questions that we, we don't know. And even I spend, um, a certain amount of time imagining, you know, the synagogues that have been excavated primarily, I like Sepphoris, you know, that they're, they're sort of these magnificent, uh, magnificently sort of large structures in some ways and clearly representative of wealthy communities. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the kind of community that I imagine could, could uh, employ someone like, uh, we have poets that we know by name, they wrote significant bodies of poetry. They're probably you know, professionals in some way. We, you know, we don't, it's hard to imagine that Jews in the, in the hinterland, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, having sort of like, you know, but we have, so I sort of imagine not only did the change of, the, were the, did performance vary over time, you know, from the fourth century to the seventh century to the middle ages, mm-hmm. but even that there might have been more elaborate performances with, you know, sort of, qua- I mean, we know that churches had choirs, for example, uh, sort of trained voices in some way lead helping the refrains to more of what I think of as community theater mm-hmm. productions <laughs> 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 sort of a little bit you know, 
rougher in some way, but no less heartfelt. <laughs> um, and to some extent, this whole like I mentioned, most of my most of the texts I work in come from the Geniza, and that's really important because of the sheer quantity of liturgical poetry that has been recovered from the Geniza, which indicates a, f a far larger tradition of liturgical poetry in you know up through the 10th century uh, than had really previously been considered to be the case. I think you know, that there's just much more of this poetry than people had really realized and in some ways it's a, as a result it's a very young field mm -hmm. studies just because you know we're still people are still joining Geniza fragments and there are still bits of new poems being found and the poet that my first book was on Yanai uh, the critical edition of his book of his works didn't come out until 1987 mm -hmm. yeah so I think uh it's there's so there's still it's, a, it's like a it's a, it's a marvelous sandbox to play in because there's just so much work that can still be done. And I also, I mean, in addition to the Jewish poetry, I've been looking at Samaritan poetry as well, sort of to, uh, as an, I think an important complement to the Jewish and Christian material. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about the application of this to texts because it strikes me that this, it's a really compelling thesis at a high level about the way these were performed and, and the fact that that would necessarily be inflected by certain norms of performativity. But I wonder about, to come back to one of the things you talked about earlier, once you get closer to specific texts, does this help us do things like divvy up who is the persona who's supposed to be speaking? And part of the reason I'm thinking about this I mean, you you had a, a funny aside about the Song of Songs, but uh, one of your colleagues, I hope this is okay to mention, but one of your colleagues, Doug Campbell, uh, has this giant book, The Deliverance of God. And one of the things he does in there, part of his key thesis is, uh, as you read Romans, you need to read some of this, not as Paul speaking in his own voice, but rather it's a persona that he's adopting, right? And he gets criticized quite a bit for this because among other things, the, uh, the idea is, well, there's no discipline to this. If you can just sort of willy nilly put some things in quotation marks in order to, to lighten the interpretive load on yourself, then there's no control on that, right? So all that to say, I'm interested to hear how much does this theory uh, provide guidance and provide confident guidance to someone who wants to do the sort of thing you're talking about, where you can identify speakers and texts and that sort of thing. And one of the advantages I suppose I have is that precisely because these were performed works, mm -hmm. <laughs> we do know that they were being delivered uh, before a, you know, an audience that was in some way sort of responding. And so I do things like look at changes in you know, first, second, and third person speaker, you know, are they, are they speaking to someone, you know, and then, and, or are they speaking about them? You know, are they speaking to the people Israel, their, to their congregation? Are they speaking about Israel? But no matter, are they speaking in the voice of God? I mean, most of the time, it's actually fairly clear who's speaking. Um, and then sort of in those places where it's ambiguous, you still know that they had, they could, there's sort of not a neutral place for this mm. kind of work. And very rarely do you want to understand the, if the, the I, if there's, a, if there's a first person singular 
speaking, that that is just to be limited to the poet. That's usually, I think that that's, or, or to the performer, that's sort of more of a rhetorical hmm. eye. But, but the, nonetheless, the poet is always speaking. And I sort of say in this liturgical poetry, two audiences, there's the human congregation and the divine mm-hmm. listener. But at the same time, sometimes the poet speaks in the voice of the community. And sometimes it's like we say, and other times it's adopting the divine persona. But it's very uh, dramatically rich in that way. Mm. And I think uh, one of my favorite examples of sort of the drama of liturgical poetry is actually from uh, Romanos, uh, Aaron Galbe Walsh's, uh, one of her, her poets, who uh, he has a, uh, his poem on the Akedah. It's like, it's cinematic actually, in a way, the way it sort of starts out from mm. in the present moment, sort of from afar. And then it leads you in and you suddenly you see this old man walking with his, this lad and the two servants towards this man. And it, but it sort of brings you in and, and, it, and you enter sort of the, the mind of the poet who's sort of thinking through the scene for everyone, but then hmm. it moves without really sort of indicating how into the fact, into the moment. And eventually, you know, it sort of these, it has these like layers and layers of, of uh, perspective in it, which I find you know, very, as I said, it's almost cinematic in a way, mm. the, the mm. image that it creates. And so I think we do have the, perf- but one thing, I mean, just this morning, uh, I had a, I got an inquiry from a, from a graduate student who I know because there's a, an Aramaic poem for Purim, which is written in the voice of the wife of Haman, Zeresh. Mm-hmm. And she's mourning her 10 sons who have died because their father was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's this really sort of heart-wrenching sort of lament, but it, because it's in the voice of, of a very wicked woman, according mm-hmm. to rabbinic tradition, uh, she's, it, she dies a horrible death at the end. But I think, but the, there's a theory that, that, she's, that, that that poem is a, sort of a mock gospel, it's mock, it's using, it's setting up Zeresh as sort of a, to undermine the figure of Mary at the cross. So it's this anti-Christian polemic is one way of reading this text. So Zeresh mourning her 10 sons is a sort of one-upsmanship of Mary mourning her one son. And, and And the question is sort of where does that come from? And one of the things that's sort of interesting is we have sort of like their various obviously polemical motifs associated with the holiday of Purim, but that poem being in the voice of Zeresh, that sort of the creation of a character as it were, uh, seems to be fairly distinctive to this poem. And so it's, it's sort of like the poem is hospitable to the creation of character and voice in a way, which I think is related to the performed context and you know that 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 makes it sort of more natural to speak in character, which mm-hmm. that again takes me back into the prognathmata and ethopoeia, and you know the fact that you'd be trained to inhabit these personae. So it's not I'd say it's not random. I mean, sometimes it's, it's ambiguous who's speaking, but you know someone is speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask, following up on that, uh, <clears throat> a lot of what you're describing is a kind of popular orientation. Uh, and an appeal to uh, a broader audience, an appeal to uh, lay people, uh, folks who are having experiences elsewhere in the community. 
And in that way, what you're describing is innovative. Um, when you look at the content of uh, the poetry, for example, um, is it also theologically innovative? I mean, it sounds like some of what you're describing with the Zerish example could be categorized that way. Um, but when you look at it more broadly, are you seeing um, theological religious innovation uh, in terms of the content itself? I mean, it's such a vast body of writing that I do think for the most part, it is, like I said, the public face of Midrash in some ways. And mm -hmm. there are places where it is more, because I think, I sort of think it's because of liturgical context and what's appropriate to do in a service. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm thinking, um, like for the figure of Noah, for example, is not critiqued in the poetry the way the figure of Noah is critiqued in, in Bereshit Rabbah. Mm -hmm. That it's, uh, it's more positive, actually highlights sort of his priestliness in some ways that are kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So it can sometimes be uh, a little bit, and sometimes it can be a little bit more conservative in that way mm -hmm. from what you might see in, in a seminar, as it were. It is definitely sort of more because of the participatory element, there are certain things which it's different to imagine them being said sort of with the force of community behind them. Mm -hmm. and, and there are places where the poets do seem to speak, I'd say sort of more obliquely than, than, than it, it would be nice if they were more explicit sometime, but uh, the sense that you get from a lot of these poems, and I'm thinking here specifically of Yanai writing in the, middle in the middle of the sixth century where it's uh fervent messianism mm -hmm. is the sense you get the sense that he is speaking to a community that is really expecting something to happen and on the one hand he's he, he sort of reflects it but at the same time he also is i think sort of working to displace the energy so that don't sort of like don't try to make anything happen Mm -hmm. uh, we have sort of, you know, and this ties to evidence of Jews participating in the Samaritan rebellions and other things. It was sort of an, uh, an energetic moment <laughs> in, in, the, really in the Galilee. Mm. And so there's trying to counsel sort of, I think, sort of like, it's like a, a hope but tempering it so that you don't actually like try to make anything happen. And, and that's a place where even Again, I'm sort of waiting to find out some of like what's going on with the Chukok mosaics, because if there's a, I think there's a, Jody has mentioned that there is Daniel imagery, mm -hmm. uh, the four beasts and things. And that would sort of also tie into this, the, does the visual program even reflect something sort of apocalyptic uh, in expectations? I'd say most of the things that you see, there can be novel, exegetical content. I wouldn't say it's not, it's not just like the theology can be fairly conventional, but I think there can be certain hmm. motifs and flourishes, or sometimes you'll have something, uh, uh, something that's present but fleeting in mm -hmm. the in rabbinic midrash will become more developed and articulated in the poetry. I'm thinking there's a reading of Abraham, which uh, Abraham is sort of becomes the uh, maiden who is 
running off with God from war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's a sort of gender bending. It's sort of interesting, uh, but Abraham becomes conflated with, uh, so gets like read with Psalm 45 and the Song of Songs. And, and so Abraham becomes this, uh, which again, those the, the texts, a lot of times in rabbinic midrash, the texts that the poets use are, are the same texts that are used in Midrash, mm-hmm. but they, because of the nature of their canvas, they have sort of a more, more leisurely time to develop certain ideas. So you've developed these analytic tools to help you make sense of some texts in the period you study. Presumably though, these same analytic tools shed light on things outside of that period. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, as you've trained yourself to see by means of these analytic tools, um, does it shed light for you on contemporary performances of liturgy or just contemporary performance? Uh, do you see that differently in virtue of thinking this way? Well, this will, this will forever date the podcast a little bit. But <laughs> I can say that... <laughs> I've written some on the on acclamations and looking at the emergence of these sort of these very short fixed you know sort of refrains in Hebrew poetry in late antiquity as being part of the culture of of acclamation in late antiquity and part of the idea for that actually came four years ago or so <laughs> when I was attending a protest at the airport. Mm. And I found myself really intrigued by how the chants moved down the line. Mm. And how did we how did we know these words? And and at the same time, I was never 100% sure that what we were saying was exactly what they were saying. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, sort of further up the line, you know, sort of that, but that sense that somehow I, who had never attended protests before, had somehow that kind of literacy where I could, I could, you know, responding to sort of the cues that were around me, mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. myself yeah. saying, saying things, and saying things, you know, at a volume that you normally don't speak, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and even, and this is the kind of thing where again my work I get I'm I'm willing I just sort of want to raise at this point certainly because we don't we can't know anything for certain. But imagining how certain things would be in a, you know, in a socially distant synagogue, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, where you know, versus the, the 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 physical sensation of being crowded together. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, sort of like you know, being crowd, you know, sort of noisy with a bunch of other people mm-hmm. is, is a very itself a very distinctive experience. That's more than just. So I have actually done some looking uh, mm-hmm. at, at like, you know, worker songs and sort of protest songs and these types of things. And, you know, sort of in one of the questions that I got from a, from a, from a friend who was sort of like, you know, when does, when does the congregation become a mob, you know, mm. which, <laughs> <laughs> and, and part of that is because some of the evidence we have from late antiquity is, you know, we have the uh, Ambrose versus the Arians and sort of these sort of you know, they're sort of like, I think of them as psalm slams, you know, where they, we have like in the streets. <laughs> but they would be, you know, out in the streets chanting at each other. And, but it's, 
and sort of like, and it's like we have to write hymns because they've got really good hymns and it's all out in the street. And even sort of trying to sort of figure out at what point, you know, um, is, is, do I have, you know, how do I take into account sort of the fact that, that performance spaces could be anywhere? I mean, they had like, right. you know, that, that it's, we have plenty of evidence that any sort of street corner, you know, the instant you have eyes on you, Mm-hmm. You are a performer and that that could take, there could be, you know, we have plenty of theaters and evidence of theater infrastructure throughout late antiquity and throughout the ancient world. And, you know, I mean, I've gone to, you know, I love visiting theaters in Spain, you know, Roman theaters, and you're sort of getting a sense of just what you couldn't call yourself a, a civilized if you didn't have this certain mm-hmm. infrastructure. It's sort of like, I mean, it's like a modern version, like, you know, like when I remember when I first went away to college and I started out at a, I started out at Grinnell College in Iowa, mm-hmm. and I remember that there was one movie theater in town, and the entire semester that I was there, it was showing Field of Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was sort of emblematic of a certain absence of civilization. <laughs> but I think, you know, so it's sort of like, you don't want to have, a, you know, a theater and then just have them, you know, they're just putting on Euripides again. So, but I do think, you know, sort of like you become very aware of, uh, yeah, I think it's it's natural now, I think for me, when I read something, if I have sort of, you know, if I, I evaluate my response to things based in part of like, are they are they speaking to me? You know, mm-hmm. like, who's the audience of this mm-hmm. work? And sometimes you can, sometimes you'll hear, you know, I'll be, I'll be, you know, you know, listening to a webinar and I'll be thinking like, oh, this person, they don't know who their audience is. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I don't know who's our audience. <laughs> Our audience is whoever tunes in. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, we like to ask all of our guests uh, a version of the same question. Uh, that is, we like to ask everybody in the project that you're working on, uh, what's your biggest question? Uh, so if we pose that question to you, what's your biggest question as you think about theater and synagogues? Um, I think I don't, my biggest question is ultimately so what was it like I really and I'm not trying to find a single answer I'm trying to create sort of a range of possibilities hmm. and sort of a, a, a sort of a plausibility field of what it, of what it could have been like from what I think of as sort of the most you know dull and tedious sort of manifestation of certain things to the most engaging to me and I realized that to some extent that just reveals more about me than about late antiquity but I liked it but if I, <laughs> if I can convince myself that it's plausible yeah and mm-hmm. then I I just take so much energy from imagining this because I think I think it must have been a dynamic hmm. and engaging because engaging experience and I try I'm trying so hard to imagine it in four dimensions, as it were, Mm. and to Mm. really understand what it, uh, what it would have been like, possibly, Mm. I think, in part, because these are the poetic traditions that would go up through Italy into the Rhineland and become the poetry sort of the Ashkenazi Jews. And for so long, uh, I, I, loving medieval Hebrew poetry uh, when uh, I was in rabbinical school and being told that, that <laughs> the Ashkenazi poetry was bad. Why would you read the Ashkenazi poetry? Ah. And really sort of thinking like, well, is that because 
their aesthetics were bad or because our aesthetics have changed. And I think just getting that sense of the energy and the liveliness mm. of really sort of late antiquity in general, but particularly that, that this, the synagogue mm. atmosphere. I love that. That's a very just evocative and just compelling way to think about the sort of work you're doing. And it it sheds light on the kind of thing that we would want to be trying to get at, right? Imagining ourselves into uh, a whole world that is ancient, but not for that all that discontinuous from ours. So anyway, I would love to be able to talk with you a lot longer, but we promised we wouldn't keep you a lot longer. <laughs> so we will ask you uh, just one last question. And it's a chance to uh, for you to give a public service announcement. So uh, our audience reaches beyond people who are specialists in the, the sort of work that you do. So it's a chance for you to say something about what you wish people outside of your field understood about the sort of work you do or about your subject matter. I think I would say that Judaism in this period of late antiquity, by which I mean the third through seventh centuries of the common era was not a period of simply horrific oppression mm. and scrabbling for survival, but rather an age that was glittering. Mm. And I believe the image I think, because we have the mosaics, we have the monumental infrastructure, mm -hmm. And we have these poems, which I think of as being themselves sort of literary mosaics, which were consumed and enjoyed and uh, assembled uh, out of fragments of scripture and hmm. popular convention that lit up the place. I think it's, uh, it was a splendid era that is so often overlooked in the period we have sort of like the, the first century or two of the common era, some things happened. And then maybe you know the, the the Middle Ages, but there's this this little slice of of Jewish culture that I think was very critical in late antiquity, and uh, and it's only now really I think coming to light both textually and in terms of material culture, but it's uh, beautiful. That is wonderful and well earned in light of all <laughs> the things that you've been teaching us. Thank you for that. Thank you thank, so much. Thank you. Um, this has been the Biggest Questions podcast, and our guest has been Laura Lieber. Laura, thank you uh, again for a really interesting discussion. It's my pleasure. <laughs>